0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is David Castignetti. David is a legislative and political strategist who has played a critical role in shaping some of the most significant policy issues of the past three decades. His policy expertise and political chops are widely known, and he has been recognized as one of Washington's top lobbyists by Businessweek, Washingtonian Magazine, The Hill, and CQ. Just this year, David received the Business Government Relations Award from the Bryce Harlow Foundation, the premier organization dedicated to advancing the integrity of government advocacy and the development of sound public policy. The award recognizes David's career at Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, the firm he co-founded, and today is one of the most respected and effective bipartisan government relations firms in Washington. David's career has placed him at the highest levels of government, business, and Congress. While on Capitol Hill, David earned a reputation for integrity and collaboration while working as chief of staff to Senator Max Baucus and Congressman Norm Mineta. Prior to that, he worked for now-Senator Ed Markey when Markey was in the House. In 2004, David was asked by John Kerry, the Democratic nominee for president, to serve as the presidential campaign's top liaison to Congress. And Casto helped navigate two different nominations for cabinet secretary positions. David is passionate about more than just politics. He is also a baseball fanatic. He is part owner of a minor league baseball team. And he's also passionate about mentoring young professionals. Literally hundreds of people have benefited from his advice and counsel, and he is still mentoring staffers and former staffers. He can also be found advising CEOs, C-suite executives, and speaking to boards and conferences across the country today. Casto is a friend, but before I got to know him well, I knew his reputation for thoughtfulness, candor, smarts, and his big laugh. I am so happy to have the opportunity to present our conversation to you. We recorded it on Friday, October 14th. I hope you enjoy it. David Castagnetti, welcome to Staffer.
1: Jim, thank you for uh, having me. I'm very excited. It's always a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you. I look forward to it.
0: Same here. I've been looking forward to this all week. Um, As you may know, I...
1: (laughs) <laughs>
0: that's right one of the worst weeks i've had all year and this has been the light at the end of the tunnel uh no truly i I've, I've, i always enjoy talking with you and i've been looking forward to this conversation sincerely um and as you may know i do like to start uh talking with my guests about where they grew up and what family life was like so could you tell me a little bit about the family?
1: Sure. Um... You know, where uh, my uh, just to set the stage a little bit for those of you who don't uh, know me, I uh, grew up in a city just outside of Boston called Medford, Massachusetts. I went to Medford High um, and uh, was very fortunate to grow up there. Um, It basically was a town of, or a city of kind of three types of people Uh, first, mostly first, second generation Italians. Uh, for a second-generation Irish, and has a, a about a ten percent African-American population. It was actually one of the first uh, freed cities in um, uh, in the colonies, so it, it's always been part of our life. You know, the Castagnetti household was pretty interesting place. I, um, you know, I, my dad was a, a machinist and a bartender. My mom Uh, attended bar with my dad a couple nights a week as as we were growing up. I have a brother um, uh, uh, his name is John who uh, was mentally disabled growing up and grew up uh, basically in a group home not too far away from where we live so we saw him uh, fairly regularly um, and was part of our life and you know I had a ton of aunts and uncles and cousins and you know, that was a big influence in my life. And on my mother's side, I have 32 first cousins, which I'm 31 of 32. So you can imagine some of the dinner uh, discussions that we had at at various times. And I had, you know, I had second cousins that I went to college with, you know, because I was because I was so at the end, I have cousins who were 25 years older than me. So it was a different, you know, a different place, different family. than a lot, and and grew up in a, a really kind of fun, interesting environment between the family and the community. I uh, I grew up in. So
0: I mean that community, as you mentioned, it um, it was diverse, uh, and it had you know all sorts of people doing all sorts of different types of jobs. I I know that you know your family sort of had a brush with Boston's political scene and yeah. Tip O'Neill and the politics. Could you could you talk about? One, you know, what that what 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 I'm referring to, but also how did you come to meet politics? And was that part of the family dynamic at
1: all? So my uncle uh, owned a a men's clothing store uh, in the north end of Boston, which is where my dad and uh, he and a whole bunch of my aunts and uncles grew up. um, Which, by the way, if uh, a little recommendation, if anyone goes to the north end, don't go to Mike's pastry, go to Bova's pastry. It's much better, and you don't have to wait in line as long. But um, but my my brush uh with politics is uh my uncle's uh clothing store um is the place where Tip O'Neill, Joe Moakley, Dapper O'Neill, who was a you know a Boston kind of character, Irish Catholic uh, city councilor forever. Uh, used to hang out on Saturday mornings, and that's where they would get uh, fitted for their suits. And including on the day, um, if you ever read uh, John Farrell's book about Speaker O'Neill, the opening paragraph uh, of the book is the speaker going to my uncle's clothing store to get his final tailoring before he left to be sworn in as speaker. So that was kind of, you know, the introduction that that I had was kind of watching my uncle, um, uh, you know, deal with elected officials.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Um, I know uh, you, when you went off to college, you uh, attended Lake Forest College in Illinois, and it's there that you got into politics in a a very personal way. Um, You were playing football. So how did that come about?
1: Yeah. So I, I went out to Lake Forest College. I, I was, I, you know, I, I thought I was off to the NFL at some point, right? like many others. Um, uh, no, just kidding on that. But, you know, I, I was going to play and I ended up playing for a couple of years. And then, you know, I decided it was time to do something a little different. And uh, some of my friends uh, came to me and said, hey, why don't you run for the president of the school? Um, uh, which I did. And end up winning uh, a couple times, uh, both my junior and senior year, uh, in doing it. And it it was uh, really fun. And one of the things that, you know, uh, I helped organize um, was uh, a letter-writing campaign for Pell Grants. Um, You know, there were a lot of Lake Forest students who were there due to Pell Grants. And it was an important piece of the school's funding, obviously, as well as it is for most higher institutions even today, um, and began a letter writing campaign, uh, to, um, you know, keep help, help grants in place. And, uh, that was kind of my first introduction into kind of national politics other than, uh, local politics of Lake Forest college and the issues that confront every student, I think college student at that time, uh, as well.
0: So you send off some letters and one of them goes to then Congressman Ed Markey, to which he replies, and it begins a dialogue between the two of you. So yeah. you know, right? So upon, I, so tell me how you actually connected with him, and whether that was after you graduated or while you were still in school.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So um, a little bit it goes back, Jim. Even if we go back one step, when I was at Medford High School, I had the the, the privilege of being one of the captains of the state championship football team Ah. and received this very nice letter for this then up and coming congressman uh, by name of Ed Markey congratulating me Um, and interestingly enough when I did the Pell Grant uh, letter writing campaign uh, you know because of course my mother kept the Ed Markey congratulations letter you know I happened to compare the two letters and at, at the last sentence of both of those letters it says, if I can ever be of assistance to you, please contact me. And I was like, huh, that's a pretty nice offer. I think I'll take him up on it because at <laughs> Lake Forest, I needed an internship uh, in order to graduate as part of my, I was a what was called a local and regional studies major, and I needed an internship. And I was like, hey, it'd be kind of fun working in a congressional office. So I picked up the phone. I called him. Why he took my call, I still don't know the, I don't have a good answer to that, but he did say, uh, talk to Jerry Salemi and um, we'll try to set something up. And lo and behold, um, you know, that summer I interned in um, what was then um, uh, Congressman Markey's district office, uh, which was kind of my first experience into, into government and into politics. Well,
0: you end up working, uh, for Congressman Markey. And I mean, I got to observe Ed Markey when he was in the house, uh, for about a dozen years. I was, you know, it was when I saw him and by then he was already like a senior house member, uh, very high up on energy and commerce. If you wanted to do anything in the area of energy or the environment, you had to work with Ed Markey, get his counsel, et cetera. Um, he also is such a talented Paul. I mean, knows his stuff in substance, great sense of humor, amazing storyteller, knows the rules of the house. So he was one of these members who I really admired, even though I didn't get to work with him directly. What do you take from that experience about politics yeah. and leadership from being able to work with him so closely?
1: That's a great question. And and Jim, I, the one thing I would say that I would even... I've been very fortunate to work for a number of different members and learn from each member. Um, And and with that, the the interesting thing, to your point, I think I learned, you know, work hard, do your job, don't take yourself too seriously, be willing to joke around, think about what is the one or two lines that you really want to convey to people that drive home the message that you're looking to to drive home. Um, learned how to be personable, and I also learned the, the the other piece I always learned is never have lunch at your desk. Always uh, always go out to meet people because you never know who you're going to meet. Um, so I you know I spent a lot of uh, time as a young kid, especially in my in the first job with Ed. That you know we would stop at various diners throughout the district. Um, to have lunch or brunch or whatever it was on that, uh, that given day. Um, but I think the, the piece, the big pieces, the big takeaway, do your homework, be self deprecating, um, and be ready to, to defend, uh, your position as kind of my takeaways.
0: I also, I do love that advice of never have lunch at your desk.
1: You know,
0: I've certainly had lunch at my desk many times, but I've I've never heard that piece of advice. And I love it because it does speak to like the, you know, the randomness of life and of politics. You just never know what's going to come from being out there.
1: Yeah. You never know who you're going to bump into, who you're going to meet, who you're going to have a conversation with, right? What you're going to learn or what you may help someone else learn at the same time. Um, you know, it, it also might be, you know, part of the reason why I'm 20 pounds overweight is because I don't <laughs> have lunch on my dad. Right? So.
0: There's the walk. A walk is involved. <laughs> 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 um, okay. So you're serving as Congressman Markey's district director up in Boston. What brought you to Washington?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great question, uh, Jim. And, um, at the time I was serving as Congress, and Congressman Markey's district director, I also got married and I married this lovely woman who I am so lucky to be married to for 32 years, uh, Ann Cahill. And Ann had been involved in a number of uh, presidential campaigns, um, both in the Dukakis campaign um, uh, and then leading to President Clinton's campaign doing advance work. And. Lo and behold, as she was doing advanced work in the Clinton campaign, they asked her to move to Little Rock to help work with the yet-to-be-determined vice president's team. And lo and behold, she ends up becoming a scheduler for Mrs. Gore. So she moves to Little Rock. I'm in Massachusetts running Markey's district office. And lo and behold, we go five or six months without seeing each other. So I said to her, all right. I'm gonna plan a trip, we're going to Marco Island. Uh, you're just gonna meet me in Little Rock and I will fly down from Boston and we're and that's gonna be our vacation, you know, cause obviously we hadn't seen each other in a while. So lo and behold, that's what we do. Um, you know, and this is the day, you know, this is pre cell phones, right? So the only way you could get, receive communication was you had to be on a landline. So, Ann and I go out to the beach, we hang out, we come back into the hotel, and the red light is blinking on the phone <laughs> in the hotel, right, which probably a lot of your younger viewers have no idea what I'm talking about um and so we're playing back the messages, and lo and behold, um there's a gentleman uh, by the name of Michael Hooley who called in and said, "Hey, do you want to work on presidential personnel um in in the White House and be one of the first employees in?" the white house on the day that the president is inaugurated incredible. And so lo and behold, we're having this conversation and I'm, and she's like, Oh, what do I do? And why? And I was like, this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. We're going to move to DC. We'll be there three or four years. We'll go back to Boston and you know, life's going to be great. So, and move to move to uh, DC, uh, right from, um, Uh, from Florida, never went home. I went back home. I packed up the house and um, we ended up settling in Glover Park. And I kind of came down, you know, without, uh, you know, a job. Uh, I was kind of, you know, still working for Marky, but kind of figuring out next steps. Um, But it was all because of Ann and the election of President Clinton uh, that we moved here. I love it. Well, that brings me to my next uh, question. Another
0: legend that you worked for was Norm Mineta. Um, and for those who don't know the late, great Norm Mineta, I mean, he was beloved. He served in Congress for two decades. He was also the first person of East Asian descent to serve in the cabinet. Um, this is also unique. So he served as Commerce Secretary under President Clinton. And then he's one of those rare people to, not only be cabinet secretary for two different agencies, it was for two different presidents of two different political parties because President George W. Bush asked him to serve as secretary of transportation. Um, You were the congressman's chief of staff. When I say that he was like, you know, beloved, he really was. And and that is a, that is rarefied air. I mean, members of Congress, elected officials, they can respect each other. They can be, you know, they can not like each other or not respect one another. And he was well-liked and well-respected. What, what was it about him that made him so special?
1: Yeah. He, he, um, and just as a side note, Jim, as you know, he recently passed away, uh, as well. And it was, you know, a, you know, a sad day for all of us. Um, who loved him. And I think, and, and it, it is interesting um, that the DC service, if I may, just for one second, the DC service was um, at United uh, Methodist Ch- National Church here on Nebraska Ave up by AU. And there, the, there were a thousand people in the church and those thousand people all thought they were his best friend. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that is just the uniqueness of who he was, I, th- I think. To me, there are a couple of things about him. One, he always had time for people. Always had time for you. Uh, he constantly um, a- a- another person who was kind of always out on the Hastings and kind of talking to people and learning. And and the great story I always tell is I if if I may, Jim is. Um, the first time I went to Silicon Valley after taking the job, Norm and I were going to then meet the the CEO of Hewlett-Packard, and Norm's at the front desk, and of course, Norm knows the receptionist, right? I mean, it's classic Norm. He went to high school with her brother, and they're sitting there having a conversation, and all of a sudden, the CEO of Hewlett-Packard comes walking downstairs, and to greet Norm. And Norm is in the middle of a conversation. And you know what? He wasn't leaving that person at the front desk until he was done. And it wasn't because it was a DC power play at all. It was because, you know what? He was focused, he was engaged in that conversation, and he wasn't walking away from the middle of a conversation that he was having, you know, very, in many ways, you know, very, you know, President Clinton-esque, right? Like you were the most important person um, at that moment. And, you know, from him, you know, learning to be respectful to everyone, which I think my parents also instilled in me, um, that it didn't matter what title you had, it mattered that we're all human beings and we all have unique needs. And I think that's what made him special. Right. And to your point, as a leader in Congress, not only was he a leader in as as secretary of commerce and secretary of transportation, but he passed bipartisan legislation that would end up affecting both departments. He clearly was a leader in civil rights that, um, uh, you know, kind of, you know, ahead of 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 a lot of the discussions that we're having today and. You know, led the effort for reparations to Japanese Americans who were interned uh, during World War II. Um, so, he, just an was. amazing leader.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I said, as he was, right? He and his family, mm-hmm. right? And and famously, Correct. he. I mean, there there are so many stories that I've read that have come out of that, but one of them is that while he he was at he, he was interned at a camp in Idaho. And it just so happened that, I'm sorry, Wyoming. Wyoming, thank you. Thank you, Wyoming. Yep. Uh, uh, as a young boy, uh, se- future Senator Simpson uh, was in a part of a Boy Scout troop, right? Why don't you tell the story?
1: Yeah, so, you know, it, it is a funny story. So uh, the, the Norm is forced on a train from San Jose to Cody, Wyoming, um, to the internment camp. And as he said, it wasn't much of a camp because the Gun towers were turned inward, not outward, you know, Um, and the local Boy Scouts decided they were going to, the Boy Scouts from Cody, Wyoming, were going to come in and spend the day with their counterparts uh, in the Japanese-American community. Ends up happening that uh, the two boys who end up sharing a tent are Norm Mineta and Alan Simpson, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, you know, the two of them both have a little streak and they tell a little story about building, I'm not a Boy Scout, but building around their tent a a little uh, moat kind of thing so the water ran away and ran into someone else's tent that they didn't particularly (laughs) like, you know. And then, lo and behold, they end up um, serving together a number of years later, and obviously Mr. Simpson in the Senate, Norman Lowe's, And, um, you know, Mr. Simpson was very instrumental in the reparations bill. Mr. Simpson was very instrumental in helping get that legislation through uh, the Senate, you know, so there there was some real bipartisanship and Mr. Simpson understood the the need for it. And matter of fact, it's called Heart Mountain is the place. And matter of fact, they just dedicated uh, a couple of weeks ago the Minetta Simpson Institute out at Heart Mountain to continue to tell the story of of, of, um, of Japanese Americans being interned uh, in that facility. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, it just um, happened.
0: When President Bush nominated uh, Secretary <clears throat> Mineta to be Secretary of Transportation, uh, his White House reached out to you to help shepherd that confirmation process. Um, yeah. I've, I've had the opportunity to see people you know, go through that process, but I have not Sherpa'd them as it's known through that process. So can you describe what that process looks like?
1: Yeah. Actually, I I was very fortunate, Jim. I I I had the ability to 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 shepherd Norm through the 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 President Clinton process and uh, okay. the President Bush process as I didn't well. Know that. Um and it, you know, both incredibly um Fascinating experiences and slightly different committee chairs and stuff that you dealt with um, as well. Um, and uh, you know, it, 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 I I will say in all the meetings that that I had, that the one that was most interesting was um, Senator McCain and Normanetta. Right, you had two heroes of different eras, two American heroes in very different ways, obviously, but. Um, it, it was an interesting uh, conversation. Just the respect that they had for each other because of what uh, they, you know, went through in their own lives. But you know, it, it, it was it, it was for me as a learning experience. Both processes were just fascinating, right? One learned even more than I thought I knew about the government bureaucracy and putting documents together to uh, to get someone confirmed people don't think about that part of it, right? Like, how do you, you know, what do you got to disclose and how do you disclose it? And what are the ethics things that you have to do? And how do you sell your stock of this or that before the confirmation because you can't have it right? Like there are all these processes that um, go into into place. Beyond kind of, all right, how do you start to count the votes and what's the mission of the being the secretary uh, going to be? Um, and again, to your point that you raised earlier, the historic nature of it on top of it. Right. I feel very blessed that I was certainly helped a, a piece of history, allowing the first Asian American to be uh, confirmed uh, as a cabinet secretary. Um, that's a big deal Um, and to to have played a a minor role in that is is a big deal and I think to your point on on President with having the ability to deal with President Bush and I'll give credit both to to Markey and Mineta on this because both of them were never afraid to reach across the aisle in order to get done what they needed to get done um, that, you know, having the ability to, to work with some folks, uh, in the, in the Bush White House early on, uh, was really a great, you know, learning experience for me, uh, at, at the time as well. And hopefully they learned something from me, <laughs> uh, at the same time. So, um, you know, I did, as I say, I, not only did I, did I help with President Bush shepherd through, uh, Mr. Mineta, but, you know, after the, the part I didn't talk about about my upbringing is after I graduated from Method High School, I went to Andover for a year as a what's called a postgraduate. Um, so I feel like I have a connection uh, with President Bush 41 and President Bush 43. 41 and I happened to both play first base for Andover, which I thought was pretty cool. That is and, cool. President Bush 43 created something that still exists today, which basically is a stickball league that we used to just play in the main part of campus. And it was a big deal uh, when I was there that President Bush 43 created. So kind of like these weird things in life that I've been fortunate to to be part of.
0: Yeah. And it also speaks to you know, something in politics that often gets lost in all the din is that when you're a professional practitioner of politics, you do find ways to connect with people just on a human level. And, you know, you are known as a baseball guy. Uh, your email is DC Red Sox, right? You are part owner of a minor league baseball team. People know you love baseball. And that's a family, a political family that has deep roots in baseball. Um, you know, have you found it, actually, let me just add, have you found it useful, right, and and and, and enjoyable to be a known baseball fan?
1: <laughs> you know, that, that's a great question. I, and the short answer is yes, because um, in, in case you couldn't tell by my accent where I grew up. Uh, you quickly could tell by my email address exactly where i grew up you know and 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 it, it to your point i'm making it human making it personal right from the beginning there is a personal connection that you're making with people right so you know I, I you know i i grew up in massachusetts i'm a crazy lefty liberal uh, uh as well i have some really hardcore beliefs in that space but on the other side of it is it, it it makes it pragmatic, right? Because I can connect with people on a personal level first, and then help kind of try to do my best to persuade people to believe in you know the issues that I believe in, uh, or conversely, clients that that help. Uh, pay the bills through the years to, to do it. But I think engaging someone in a personal conversation first is always an important piece of the job that we're in, because at the end of the day, it's still a people business, right? We still have to get people to agree um, on issues. And, and if we don't have that connection, it's hard to get there a little bit. You know, the Minetta Simpson connection we were talking about, you know, that's, what helped get the reparations bill through. It wasn't all of it, but it was a big piece of it.
0: Yep. Yeah. That, that leads actually so beautifully to something I wanted to ask about your next boss who, so you went over to the Senate side to be chief of staff to Max Baucus of Montana. Now, everybody, as you point out, everyone who hears you knows you're not from Montana and (laughs) <laughs> I think something – something in politics – I experienced this a little bit when I became chief of staff to a congressman from New Jersey. I'm not from New Jersey and now I grew up in upstate New York. The cultural differences between upstate New York and New Jersey are not as great as Medford, Mass and Montana. And I did really appreciate the fact that as much like homework and as much exposure as I could get to central New Jersey – I would never have the organic understanding and appreciation, right, that I have of upstate New York because I grew up there and I know what the various towns think of one another and what the reputation of this high school is versus that, et cetera. Um, how did you, you know, um, show up at work and sort of evolve over time to make sure that one, you understood the cultural nuances of Montana and could give your boss sound guidance and counsel? Yeah.
1: That, that's a great question, Jim. And, and and I would take it even one step further because kind of going from Medford, Massachusetts to San Jose, California, was still pretty similar, right? The people were similar. The issues were similar. Uh, the, dyna- the the dynamism of the areas were similar, right? And remember in those days, Route 128 was Silicon Valley, uh, as well. So there was a lot of similar people and, and similar ethnic backgrounds uh, as well. So people kind of culturally grew up the same. Um, and then going to Montana, and I still, you know, I, I always rely on my first trip to Montana, and I had the privilege of going to uh, Senator Bacchus's uh, family ranch, the Seben Ranch. And you know, quickly I learned you're not supposed to wear khakis uh, on a ranch. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to have <laughs> jeans on. So I mean, it, it, it even started out kind of very culturally different. Like, what do you wear, and kind of how do you interact with people, and what do people care about? Right? Like, I would have never imagined I would have been working on the reintroduction of the wolf. Uh, in Yellowstone, right, when I was growing up in Mattford, Massachusetts. That was the last thing I thought I was going to be doing. But I I, I think to to your point, Jim, in the way that I learned uh, was not only obviously talking to Senator Baucus and kind of his kind of close-in friends, but relying on other people on the staff to kind of help bring me up to speed on more the cultural side than kind of the policy side. You know, we're all reasonably smart enough people to understand the policy. But the question to me is, how do you deal with the politics? And how do you deal with the fact that, you know, farmer didn't want to lose his cow to the wolf that was being reintroduced? You know, there's a lot of um, livelihoods, right, that are dependent upon that. And, and that was, you know, a real unique experience to me. And and the, I was very fortunate at the time. The gentleman who was the state director is a guy named Doug Mitchell. It was just one of my best friends in the world. And, you know, anytime I had a question like that, like I do, I would just pick up the phone and call Doug and like, Doug, all right. Like, what do we do? You know, what do we do here? Help me out. Because it's not instinctually the way i would think i actually had to think and understand what was going on versus with Marky and Minetta, it was totally an instinctual thing and in the way you uh you know the way i grew up was like oh yeah of course this is what we're gonna do um and you know obviously the the, the third rail Certainly, in a lot of democratic politics is the gun issue, right, and learning that by working for someone from Montana when you know the, the you, you learn how to handle a rifle or a gun at a very early age, right? Nothing I ever experienced in my life um, but again, it's a, one of those cultural issues that you 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 figure out uh, at some point,
0: yeah, well. Some of the qualities that I've noticed in people who, like you, are so successful and good in this business, are, you know, listening, um, asking questions, being observant of how people are reacting and behaving, right, and have just having all of that humility to do those things, because at the end of the day, what we're we're in the business of of trust. Somebody, you know, if you're going to persuade anyone of anything, just to be open-minded to what you're trying to bring to the table, you need to earn their trust that you have a connection and you care about, right, them, their families, their states, et cetera. Um, And that's, you know, politics doesn't have that reputation, right? And and like the TV version is like people and, you know, who are really uber confident, but it's actually a humility that I have found leads to genuine success. But back to culture for a moment. Let me let me ask you about another kind of cultural uh, divide you had to cross that wasn't quite as big geographically, but is important in Washington. And that is the difference between the House of Representatives culture and the Senate culture, because you were also navigating that. So, you know, for people who haven't worked on both sides of Capitol Hill yet, you know, what if you're going from the House to the Senate, what might you tell a young staffer to anticipate?
1: Yeah that That's a great question and And I think Jim, you know the, some of the difference between the House and the Senate, one is obviously just the way their institution is set up, right? The House is totally set up for the majority. The Senate is totally set up for the minority, right? That's just the fundamental question but 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 I think to me, organizationally, what I learned through the years is the house is still set up because you don't have that as large a staff for the most part unless you're a committee chair that, that is responsible for a whole bunch of other people, but that's a different set of issues. But in the personal office, you know, you, you're probably managing somewhere between 18 and 20 people, right? And that's, for most people, if you're a talented manager and understand kind of what makes people tick, you can manage that right? Then all of a sudden you go to the Senate and I worked for a small state senator and we had 60 employees spread throughout, you know, five, six different offices. All of a sudden you had to respect processes. You had to trust other people's judgments who were part of the decision making process. And and you learned organizationally that it's just harder to to kind of get things done because there are more moving pieces to it, right? So beyond the the just the the way the institutions are set up, the because of the funding, the organizational structures are completely different between the two, which I think people don't recognize. Um, the last thing is a as my first day on the job in the senate and i was happen to be sitting there with the the, the gentleman who was the ld a guy named mark smith and all of a sudden you know the bells go off in the senate and to me that means all right it's time to move and mark's like looking at me like i got 10 heads like <laughs> you, you it, these things don't matter in the senate you know so there are like some of these crazy little things that are that are very different, uh, as well, uh, beyond the, 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 structural part.
0: Yeah. So you, you had the opportunity to be chief of staff to several members. I mean, you've managed people throughout your career. Um, what in your mind separates the outstanding staffer from the very good? Yeah,
1: that, that's a good question. I, I, I started out by saying what separates the outstanding staffer from the good staffer is the the outstanding staffer is willing to do anything that is asked of him or her to do, right? These organizations at the end of the day are pretty small. You rely on people who are good to to get things done. You do have to be at, um, uh, even in this day and age, I think you have to be at at the beck and call of the member and the unique needs of the, the chief of staff and the LD and the press person that, that come up, Um, that to me is what separates it. And it it also shows to me that, you know, you want to learn and do things that, you know, others may not necessarily have the opportunity to do because you're seizing the moment um, that's in front of you uh, versus, well, this is kind of not in my lane, you know, starting out when, you know, I'd run to McDonald's to go get coffee. I didn't think that was part of my job description, but you know what? When I went to get coffee, I did it as good as I could do it because that is what was giving me the unique opportunity to, to, to be part of an organization and hoping to develop those personal relationships as well as kind of, you know, again, show off our intellect at, at various points uh, of our life.
0: Yeah. here, here. Um, I want to get (laughs) to your private sector, but before I do, there's one uh, political experience I really want to ask you about, and that is in 2004, uh, John Kerry was the Democratic nominee for president, and he asked you to be his liaison to Congress. So you're working for the campaign, but you are his liaison to all the senators and House members, et cetera, who want a lot from any presidential campaign. Um, including the opportunity to give their advice (laughs) uh, to the candidate and his team, et cetera. So can you, can you just talk about that role? Uh, Because it's, it's one that's, you know, not many people get to do it and it's very unique in politics because it only comes along every four years.
1: Yeah. um, Wow. You know, what a learning experience, right? So it was myself and I was very fortunate to convince Broderick Johnson to, uh, who now runs Comcast to, to join me. Um, and we were, you know, kind of a, a dynamic duo in, in many ways and really complimented each other, which was huge, right? Cause think about t- your, your point, like there were a lot of, um, uh, how do I say this nicely? A, you know, a lot of egos and personalities that we had to, to deal with. And so it, it was our job every week, um, As much as we dealt with incoming from members, every week uh, we would go to the House uh, Caucus or the Senate uh, uh, Caucus and have you know breakfast in the House case, lunch in the Senate case, and talk about what was going on in the campaign, right? And and to your point, right, there was a, a lot of advice given. There was some advice that was taken. Uh, obviously, because Senator Kerry came out of Congress, he had a lot of unique personal relationships himself uh, that you had to deal with and balance uh, to make sure that Senator Kerry was doing his job to stay in touch with with you know people that he had a long relationship with, but also making sure that newer members felt like they were part of the organization and the team uh, as well. Um, and, and it really, um, you know, I'd always been working in a in a in a personal office, and this was the closest that I ever came to working in what what I would describe as a leadership office, right? Which you know well, uh, you know, for me that was you know getting to sit in on leadership meetings with you know then, leader Dashil and and Speaker Pelosi was. Um, you know, a big, you know, a big deal for me and, and being part of the discussions about what we were doing, why we were doing it, um, really, I think, helped, you know, and, and quite candidly, there were, you know, as I, I went through the time, there were two people who, two members who specifically, I think, were very helpful to 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 Broderick and I. One was um, then uh, Congressman Menendez, who was running the House Democratic Caucus and uh, Senator Reid, who was number two behind Daschle, uh, in terms of helping us navigate some of the politics of, of dealing with their bodies. And, you know, it's not something you can do alone. Um, you, th- there's a lot of moving pieces to it and and keeping those discussions going are were important. And also knowing when, OK, when do you bring in, you know, the campaign manager, when do you bring in the communications director to talk to folks, to make them feel that, you know, they're part of the, meaning the members, that they're part of the decision making process uh, as well. And it's not just um, being lost and, and, you know, directed at the person running congressional affairs, you know, yeah. um, there are moments that, you know, the the great... Uh, the, the, the great learning lesson I had is one of the things we did, as you know, um, is allowed for a number of members to speak, uh, at the convention and, uh, one, uh, for whatever reason, I, I will never forget one member who will go nameless, uh, something happened internally and he got dropped off the list and that just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good moment. Um. One, it doesn't reflect well on the organization as a whole, and you know you're the person who has to deal with it uh, to kind of say, "Hey, sorry," and here's you know what happened, and try to be as candid um, as you can. I mean, one of the things we didn't talk about that that I've learned through the years is you know don't lie, tell the truth. It's better to deal with the Always. issues head on. Don't don't sit there and deal with the spin. Deal with the reality of what happened. Um, it, it, it's hard in the short run, but in the long run, people trust you and respect you all that much more because you're being direct uh, yep. with them.
0: And, you know, hearing you talk about that role, has, you know, it sort of reminded me that there aren't that many staffer roles where you are at the table directly with the principals Right. I mean, you still had a principal, except that principal was John Kerry, the nominee who was traveling all over the country every day, 20 hours a day. And as his representative on Capitol Hill, you were the person who members were going to directly, almost as, the, as they would have, right, had Senator Kerry been there uh, himself. And even high level leadership staff are still seated on the wall or standing in the back of the room, right? That, so there is a, there's a qualitative difference and a uniqueness about the role that you had.
1: Yeah. You know, that's a good point. One one thing I'd say, Jim, too, that I I think part of the reason I learned how to handle some of that, and this is going back into my early career, is, you know, I I originally kind of worked my way up as Ed Markey's district director. And, and some of that, You know, as I always say, the greatest thing about being a district director is my my boss wasn't there every day. The worst part of my job as district director is my boss wasn't there every day. But as a as a learning experience, even though I was a staffer, I did have some principal roles where I was dealing with local mayors, local state senators, local state reps. So even as I was in my early 30s, I was learning kind of, again, um, to your point, you know that, that a, a, a gentleman uh, he, uh, taught me, and actually, with the first uh, president of the Kennedy Library, a guy named Gerard Doherty, who was very instrumental in my life. He said to me very early on, literally when I first started working for Ed, he said to me, "David, remember, God gave you two eyes, two ears, one mouth. Using them, use them accordingly," and and that. Especially to your point, as as you get to the table, and you have, you're, you're fortunate to be in leaders with of leaders of the Democratic Party, you, you still understood your role. You were still kind of a staffer, even though you were sitting at the table, um, and 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 the conversations that you had had to be appropriate because you you're not their equal, right? You are definitely not their equal. Uh, you are a staffer even though you, you have the privilege or the opportunity to be part of the discussion and and figuring out that constant balance is uh you know is is a, is, a, is a challenge right um and you know you we we it, these jobs are great when everything's going well and they're hard <laughs> when things happen and yeah you have to be able to work your way through both
0: yep Well, I also love that it is so analogous to being a district director, uh, which I hadn't thought of. But it really is because that's when you are your boss is out of town and you are dealing with all the, you know, all the principles of the community. Um, I I do now want to get to your private sector career because, um, David, that's how I first met you was you were, you know, already an extremely respected and well-known Lobbyist downtown when I first met you years and years ago. Um, and just recently, just this year.
1: Um, just don't we, say how long ago we met. That's all I have. <laughs> I won't. I won't do it.
0: <laughs> but you you were uh, recently awarded the highest recognition for, uh, for achievement over a lifetime and excellence in the field by the Bryce Harlow Foundation, which is dedicated to advancing the integrity of government advocacy and increasing understanding of its important role in the development of sound public policy, you have exemplified that so through and through, and I 'm really an admirer of how you 've built a business and conducted your business um, and and yet we both know lobbying the term lobbying also carries baggage right, and what you know what you received a lifetime award for was integrity and informing public policy. So for anyone who's you know, listening and wondering whether they want to be a lobbyist or you know should they be a lobbyist, what does lobbying look like when done well?
1: Yeah. Good question. So can, can I start with a little side story on that? Absolutely. Uh, my youngest, uh, my oldest son, Andrew, um, came home from uh, high school one day and we would call it a civics class. They have some new term for it that they use. And- We were sitting at the dinner table and we were having this conversation and he said, hey, dad, today we talked about special interests and kind of what's special interest. And we talked about lobbying and all that. And I said, "Oh," I said, Andrew, that must have been interesting. I said, you must have had a lot to add. And I'm sure you said that your dad was a lobbyist. And his reaction was. No, <laughs> I you know, I'm not going to talk about you as a lobbyist. My friends won't like me. You know, so, oh, I mean, meatball pitch. But, <laughs> you know, so so there is, um, you know, to to your point, right? There, there's a lot of misinformation that's out there about people doing their jobs, right? And and I think. To me, it goes back to, Jim, what we've been talking about is tell the truth, right? Understand where your client's coming from. Understand where the opposition is coming from. Be respectful of what the opposition has to say. Have your answers ready for what the opposition has to say, but do it in a truthful manner and don't don't lie, don't deceive people be straightforward, again, living in that moment, uh, which may be difficult. Don't shy away from it, right? And I think to me, that's the piece, right? People get caught up. Right, We're, we, we're surrounded by a number of type A personalities in this area. Everybody wants to succeed. And you know, sometimes you only succeed by not accomplishing what you have, you know, your goal, because you're 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 straight and honest about what's going on, and you know, it, it, it's part of defining who you are and your character. And you know, as I say, especially in the, you know, as I know you've done a number of different people who have different backgrounds in government affairs, some at companies, some at communications firms. You know, one of the things about lobbying that people forget is it's very transparent. You want to know who my clients are? Go look it up. You want to know what issues I worked on? Go look it up. You want to know how much I got paid? Go look it up. It's all there. You know so to me like part of that transparency that takes place there, there's not enough credit given to it and it feels like everybody thinks everything's kind of behind the scenes right and as you know and and part of the the, the thing i really talked about it uh, with the bryce harlow award is what does the future of it look like right and to me that's the important piece because it's all going to be integrated, right? Lobbying, public affairs, communications, ESG, you can kind of put into that category as well, I think. That, that 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 they're all becoming one issue that you have to create campaigns around that we all are part of to to make things happen or not happen, whatever, you know, the the, the case may be and and I think people need to think about that uh in in that sense but again to me as an individual it comes down to your trust your integrity and do people believe you and you know uh, for the most part like you right (laughs) i think that's the to me the the challenge
0: yeah so let me now ask you about someone with whom you are professionally very closely connected to and that is bruce melman uh the name of your firm Bellman uh, yep. Castagnetti, right? Uh, that's the shorthand, how everyone refers to it. Um, tell us how, you know, you and Bruce decided to go into business together yeah. and, and what it was about Bruce that you knew, okay, this is somebody who I do want to work with. And what do you think, you know, he saw in you that made it work well?
1: Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so uh When I in between Bacchus and and the Kerry campaign, I worked with a a couple of gentlemen uh, by the name of Dave Barcony, Jeff Bergner and Chuck Brain, And we had a a lobbying firm in D.C. And fortunately for me, one of my original clients was Hewlett Packard. Ulid Packard is a guy by my Eben Tisdale, who was, if you ever read the book, The Lobbyist, he's kind of the guy who's profiled in it. One of the first Silicon Valley uh, lobbyists that that existed. He created something that was called CSPP, the Communication Systems Policy Project. And they were in the process of hiring, hiring a new executive director and uh eben asked me to meet with this guy that they were potentially hiring which guy my name of bruce melman so bruce and i got to meet each other uh we worked on a couple of issues together and then lo and behold i uh had the opportunity to go to work uh on the Kerry campaign so i left the firm i was at and um kind of you know was doing my thing and one day the phone rang and Bruce said, Hey, uh, what are you doing? I said, well, hopefully kicking your brother's ass. As you know, his brother (laughs) was running the the Bush campaign at the time. And he said, can I take you to lunch? And I said, well, as long as you're paying, I said, I'm happy to happy to go lunch. So we went to lunch at Charlie Palmer's uh, that day and, um, you know, he had a conversation about what he was thinking about long term uh, in terms of starting a a bipartisan lobbying firm and stuff. And I was like, that's great, I said. But, you know, I'm in the middle of this race and, you know, let's chat, you know, after the election um, and kind of see where we're at. And so lo and behold, uh, we uh, had – uh, lunch after the election, um, probably yeah, just we're uh, not quite yeah, so it, it, kind of mid-November time frame, and you know we we quickly learned that um, one we uh, you know had a respect for policy and understood policy and you know kind of what our strengths and weaknesses are really kind of complemented each other and the most interesting part and I think what's made it work the best is that we. Our, uh, you know, our bottom lines were the same. Uh, you know how we got there is a little different because of our own worldviews, uh, but our bottom lines were the same, and it was about creating a organization that had great deal of integrity, um, and had a you know a, a, a family atmosphere to it where people felt they were part of the team and part of driving the organization forward. And, you know, it's, I've been very blessed. It's worked very well. And, you know, as, as I had always said to Bruce, and as you know, we're now, you know, I, I I, uh, have now left the, the the firm officially. Um, And, you know, we're, you know, as I said to Bruce, when I was 60, it was time to do something new. And now I'm kind of, getting ready for the next phase of David Castagnetti's life and the, what that holds in the future. But it was an incredible run. I mean, we're 18 years together. That, that's a long time uh, in, in that business. Um, uh, of doing oh, it, and, and, and you've built something that
0: is not just so successful, but so well-respected and you've filled it with people who share the values and vision that you and Bruce also share. And I know how important mentorship has been to you, um, throughout your career, making sure people develop and are getting both out of their current jobs, what they want, the skills, the experiences, etc and can reach for that next thing. Um, you know, whatever that may be. And I personally am so excited, uh, you know, to learn that w- what comes from your next phase, like what you decide to do, um, I I'm coming up here on the top of the hour. So unfortunately I really only have time for one final question and I know it's a hard one, but I have to put it to you. If I'm able to raise the money and build a hall of fame for staffers and put it on the national mall, who would be your nominee (laughs) to the staffer hall of fame?
1: (laughs) Ooh, that's a tough question. (laughs) So I, can I give you three potential nominees? Yes, I'll take three because they represent different errors. Yes. All right. So the one, um, the the one who is who is uh, uh, kind of I grew up with and I learned a lot from uh, was Joel Johnson. Yes. Interestingly enough, he understood the relationship between leadership staff and personal staff, and was really instrumental in kind of being that link when I was in the Senate, and I think that's very unique. Uh, the other two are, are current day staffers, um, and the two are uh, Alexis Covey-Brant, who's, at, who's Steny Hoyer's chief of staff, and Brooke Scannell, who is Catherine Clark's chief of staff. I think the two of them know how to, not, one, deal with their bosses and their unique needs of their bosses, but they also understand how to deal with the, the House Democratic Caucus and how to get things done in a very unique smart way. So those are, I, I think, uh, kind of choices of, uh, like one done by the, uh, you know, the, 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 the old timers club, and then one done by, uh, kind of bringing in the new talent.
0: <laughs> those are fantastic nominees. Um, and David, thank you. I mean, I, I really enjoyed, uh, being able to talk with you as I always do and truly congratulations for the recognition uh, from the Bryce Harlow Foundation, as well as for all that you've built and been able to experience and contribute to the country. So, thank
1: you. Jim, well, uh, thank you for that. And one thing I, I will say about the Bryce Harlow thing, just to close up, is you know, it, it really means a lot to me to be recognized by people in your industry that you are doing things right. and. You know, that the, the opportunity to, to, to be recognized is, you know, just I, I'm at a loss for words to even describe how I how I feel about that. But thank you. And thank you for having me. And I hope uh, people enjoy the some of the stories here. I know they will. Thank you.
0: I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.